something is missing. Like I just, I can't tell what's missing. These songs are not gelling. They sound like they're, they're a part of three different projects. Like what is missing? And one day I just kind of, I, I, I don't even remember. I just sat down and looked up the Morse code spelling of like point A, point B, because these are also geometric like concepts and um, overture and coda, obviously are mu musical terms, but um, I typed it out and I'm like, wait a minute, let me translate this musically. And so I did that and I'm like, like, okay, I think I have something here. And so when I integrated them into the flow of things, it worked and I decided from that point moving forward that, hey, this could also be leveraged to create themes and motifs in my film and TV work because even for me, like as a percussionist, you know, rhythm is a huge part of how I interpret things, how I digest what's going on around me. Even when I'm just moving throughout my day, I'm often, I'm often listening for the rhythm of like the things around me. Hi, you're listening to Conversations with Musicians with Leah Roseman. Emily Sankofa is an American composer, producer, musician, and artist whose work spans music, visual media, and fine art. In this episode, we focused on her original music for Hulu's The Other Black Girl, the film score for Three Ways and her project Geometry, and we talked about her unique use of Morse code in her compositions and the benefits of limitations in creative work. I asked her about her experiences in HBCU marching band culture, at the Savannah College of Art and Design, being part of a positive community of mentors and peers through the Composers Diversity Collective. With her background as a percussionist and her use of Morse code, I was interested to hear about her creative process and also about some of her visual art projects and collaborative installations. Emily's discography encompasses many albums and singles and often integrates soul, jazz, classical, and rhythm and blues. Her single, Don't Fight, was included on Adult Swim's Opus compilation album. Emily has collaborated with many award-winning filmmakers and through her creative audio company, Belson, has worked with brands like Nike, BuzzFeed, and Kamala Harris for the People. At the beginning of this episode, we dig into Emily's unique score for The Other Black Girl, which I watched and recommend. It's based on a best-selling novel by Zakia Dalila Harris, and the show is an edgy thriller that's a social commentary with humorous twists and shines a light on the experience of black women in corporate America, specifically in the publishing industry. This podcast is available wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as a video on my YouTube. You can sign up for my weekly newsletter to get access to sneak peeks for upcoming guests on my website, leahroseman.com, where you can explore past episodes and support the show through my Ko-fi page. Hi, Emily. Thanks so much for joining me here today. Thank you for having me. I thought it might be uh, fun to start with the other black girl. Okay. I wanted to check out the show because I knew I'd be talking to you. And within the first two minutes, I just, I looked at my husband, who's also a musician. I said, wow, the score. He said, yeah, that's really oh, something else and really different. But the show itself is fantastic. I mean, everything, the writing, the, the directing, the, the acting, it's really, really strong. I'm curious, um, had you heard of the book before they asked you to work on the show? Um, yes. So I'd heard of the book, but I hadn't read the book mm -hmm. yet. Um, and a lot of my friends are part of book clubs. Some of them have their own specific book clubs. Um, so this book has been in a few of my peers, like book clubs. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I'd heard people talking about it. Um, so yeah, I, I, you know, interestingly, interestingly enough, um, 
when I heard them talking about it, it just wasn't necessarily um, like a story that I would have just picked up. Um, because actually when I read books, I typically read like biographies, autobiographies, and I'm like drawn to historical things, business things. So um, I haven't really read narrative books like recently. So when this came across my plate, I was like, oh, okay, let's see. Like, let's see what's happening here. So, yeah. Is the book pretty different? So I'm not sure because I still haven't read the book. Okay. Like, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, everybody asked asked me the question, like, have you read the book? And I'm like, no, I haven't. But I'm actually glad that I didn't read the book before the series because it allowed me to come into the space to create the score without any preconceived notions. And even like, for example, I'll give you the Harry Potter analysis because I was a big Harry Potter fan as a kid. Mm -hmm. And when I read the books, you know, there were some things, a lot of things translated very well, but they didn't include every single detail. And so when you come into a project like this, probably having read the book, you might approach things differently. So I appreciate um, the fact that I was able to approach this from a raw, clean slate, um, you know, no prior knowledge of the storyline, just what was in front of me with the script and what I had based on the vision of the showrunners and producers and stuff like that. So mm -hmm. it, it kind of worked out actually better in my opinion. Okay. You're about to hear Emily's main theme to the Hulu series, The Other Black Girl. Kia Delila Harris, who wrote the book, mm -hmm. I was interested to find out like it was her lived experience in corporate America that just motivated her to write this book. I believe that that was she's she's an author, um, and so I'm sure that she pulled from like ex, like real life experience. Um, I don't think this is her first book actually, um, but Zakia is an author, so this is definitely like very much so aligned with something she's she's experienced and. What's interesting is I was I was at a um, gala this weekend and a few of my peers were coming up to me talking about the show. And I didn't realize how many people um, just had the same exact experience. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm just like, OK, because personally, like it hasn't it hasn't really been my direct experience because I've typically like, I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia. Right. And so, um, a lot of my environments were either pretty diverse or like I grew up in spaces where everything was kind of predominantly like black. So for me, 
you know, I think my first experience kind of coming into the space where I was like the eyeball out was maybe grad school. Mm -hmm. And even then, by that time, I wasn't necessarily like focused on those details. I was just kind of there for a purpose. And the environment was a creative environment anyway. So it was very diverse, people from a lot of different backgrounds. So it still didn't quite give that energy. Um, And I've also never worked in corporate America. Mm -hmm. I've always been in the creative spaces. So um, the way we engage with each other is a lot different in some spaces than it is in corporate spaces. And so um, it's been really it's been really cool and interesting to hear people's um, lived experiences through the experience of the show and through them kind of seeing that on screen in this format. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, the theme alone is so very memorable and, you know, appropriately creepy. And um, but the music and the sound design throughout the show, I just love like mm. every episode. It just really struck me. That's heartwarming. I I I, I love when people say that um, because a lot of people sometimes when they hear my work often basically tell me like it's a character in itself. And I don't necessarily like go into a show saying like, I want to make the music a character because you kind of have to let that unfold as you work on the project or the show or whatever. Um, But I'm always trying to elevate things in a way that um, gives the music space to have this distinct sound and to kind of like um, live in a world of its own, but also like beautifully support what's happening so that it's out of the way. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Um, and so I think I really had like, uh, I had wide open space here because this is a brand new show. So there's an opportunity to, you know, do something that people haven't heard. Um, really, really it's just about experimentation and, a lot of the process at the beginning of us like working on the episodes was like, what is the music? Like, what is the sound of the music for the show? Like, what what are we gonna do? Um, and so upon like tinkering and just like experimenting with like vocals and different things and elements like that, you know, we arrived at what you guys hear now, mm-hmm. but um, it was definitely like a, a, a process getting to like, okay, this is it. And then, you know, creating variations and like evolving the sound of the music throughout. Mm-hmm. This is Being Diplomatic from The Other Black Girl. So it's fascinating that you use Morse code 
as one of ah. your signature things. And out of curiosity yes. this morning, I went into a Morse code generator and typed out the name of this podcast just to hear like, you know, even the word conver- what it sounded like. Yeah, even the word yeah. conversations. It was very cool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I've done all research. I know about how you came to that, but my listeners don't. Maybe you could just explain yeah. it. <laughs> how I came to using yeah. Morse code in my yeah. work. Yes. So I was working on a project called um, Geometry, which was like an EP that I was working on in maybe like 2017. Um, I started. And so I pretty much created all of the songs. And actually, let me back up. Geometry is basically um, an EP that I created that's based on a love story, but I use shapes as metaphors to tell that story. And so, you know, I had created circles, triangles, and squares. And um, you know, I'm playing it back and forth. I'm playing it for people. And I'm like, something is missing. Like, I just, I can't tell what's missing. These songs are not gelling. They sound like they're, they're a part of three different projects. Like, what is missing? And one day, I just kind of, I, I, I don't even remember. I just sat down and looked up the Morse code spelling of, like, point A, point B. Because these are also geometric, like, concepts. And um, Overton and Coda, obviously, are mu- musical terms. But... Um, I typed it out and I'm like, wait a minute, let me translate this musically. And so I did that and I'm like, like, okay, I think I have something here. And so when I integrated them into the flow of things, it worked. And I decided from that point moving forward that, hey, this could also be leveraged to create themes and motifs in my film and TV work because even for me, like as a percussionist, you know, rhythm is a huge part of how I interpret things, how I digest what's going on around me. Even when I'm just moving throughout my day, I'm often, I'm often listening for the rhythm of like the things around me. And so, um, you know, a lot of composers aren't necessarily percussionists primarily. They're, you know, wind players or horn players or, you know, um, And so for me, this was a unique way to leverage what I already do as a percussionist to um, create things that, you know, can live in the film and TV space and the orchestral space and to create, you know, melodies and, you know, chord progressions and also just add a little bit of variation. Because the thing is, it's like with Morse code, you can set the parameters for the tempo for how long or short you want the dots or dashes to be in terms of the note values, like you can set all of those parameters. So it opens up this wide world of possibilities for how you express the actual spelling of whatever you're spelling out. Um, And so that was intriguing to me and that was inviting to me and it kind of gave me um, a new way to think about how to create music. When you were just speaking, Something went by fast. Maybe I didn't understand. Did you say something about chord Mm. progressions in the context of Morse code? Yes, because like rhythmically, like when you're making, when you are um, playing chord progressions, you're also playing a rhythm. So if I'm playing like a rhythm, I'm just stacking the chords per like dot or dash or however the the Morse code configuration is organized. Um, So basically like I don't necessarily leverage them for the core progressions themselves. Mm-hmm. It's just built into the rhythm already itself, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that makes sense. But but for for melodic stuff, it's it's really like 
it helps me out so much because it gives me these ideas and it also creates a box that really gives me so many different possibilities. And lately with within my creative process, you know, a lot of people say, oh, I don't like genres. I don't like boxes. I don't like this. I don't like that. And it's like sometimes the box is the thing that number one helps you focus, but it also opens up a world of possibilities because you have to use a lim- you you use limitations in many different ways it's kind of like you know statistics almost or just like you know probability actually um so you know creating limitations really allows me to um build out unique worlds musically because it helps me focus on a limited amount of instruments or you know this one particular uh Morse code spelling and how many different ways can I express this to make it sound differently or emote in a different way? You know what I'm saying? So that's kind of like, that's my, my train of thought when I go into, um, pretty much a lot of what I work on today. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, your life as a percussionist, I know you were very involved in like marching band culture and stuff like that growing up. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. That's, yeah. You- I'd love you to talk about it. Cause you know, I'm Canadian. It's not a, part of our culture here really okay wow yeah so I I grew up in a musical household first and foremost and both of my parents went to HBCUs which are historically black colleges and universities that's what that acronym stands for and um, within those institutions across really the United States um, there's a distinct culture directly within not only just the school itself but also within the marching band And so um, both of my parents marched in the band at HBCUs. So I grew up watching that. I grew up immersed in that culture, going to homecomings. Um, Really, my dad, both of my parents outside of college were musicians. My mom played violin. My father played tuba and bass guitar and um, a lot of other things. But um, marching band was a huge part of my life. I pretty much started marching, um, not necessarily with the school, but like during the summers mm-hmm. in middle school. Um, and then when I got to high school, I was, a, I was officially like affiliated with my high school's marching band. And then when I went to college, same deal. But it's just, it's, it's really something that you have to experience. And I could like give you some recommendations. Like one of my favorite HBCU marching bands is Southern University, which they're out of Louisiana. Please look them up. They're called the Human Jukebox. Mm-hmm. Um, and I went to Hampton University. They're called the Marching Force. Um, and my brother's actually currently a drum major there now. But really what's unique about these organizations is the arrangement style, the showmanship, is a lot different from some of the core style marching bands. Um, just really the energy and culture around it. It's, it's just different. It's something you have to experience. So one day you should really come, if you come to the United States, um, you know, come to a game, just check it out and you'll see, you'll see. But in the meantime, I recommend looking up uh, Southern as like a starting point, Southern University, just to kind of see what I'm talking about. You'll mm-hmm. see. So at historically black colleges, is the marching band style different than at predominantly white colleges? Is that what you're saying? Yes, okay. very different, very different. Playing style, um, like I said, showmanship, mm-hmm. the field shows. Um, and, and what's interesting is like some of the um, PWIs are starting to kind of adopt um, some of the signature like arrangements or um, songs that we play because we also like, 
if you go to different schools, like there's a song that we have, uh, everybody calls it Nick. Um, but it's a song that almost every HBCU marching band plays, but everybody has a completely different arrangement. So they're like stand tunes that everybody plays, but they have different arrangements. Um, and we kind of do these battles, like battles back and forth across the field during the game. And what's interesting is like a lot of times people come to the games to see the band over the football team. Um, and so it's just, it's, it is, different it is different that's what i have to say it's very different it's something you really have to experience to understand like the full weight and depth of the culture and even like one time may not necessarily do it justice because if you go to different schools there are like things that are borderline similar but every school has a different culture surrounding their band too so it's just it's it's really fun mm -hmm. and i was curious to hear about your um master's in sound design at uh SCAD, that's the acronym, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Um, so SCAD is short for the Savannah College of Art and Design. And um, I went to SCAD immediately after I graduated from Hampton, where I got um, my Bachelor of Science in Music Recording Technology. Mm -hmm. And uh, the, the program at SCAD is really unique because while the major is blanketly named sound design, we learned everything from production sound to post-production sound. So that includes um, production sound mixing, dialogue editing, Foley. We had a Foley pit in the studio, um, which a lot of universities don't have. Uh, we, had, we took uh, experimental music classes. We did music supervision, scoring, uh, surround sound mixing, like just everything. Um, and so it was really a program that was structured about around um, understanding the collaborative systems and collaborative processes within the film and TV um, and really visual media space. Mm -hmm. And so we, I, I, I think that we were prepared very well to navigate this space. Um, and based on some of the feedback that I get from my peers and other programs who may have gone to like maybe... Um, just like composition programs and stuff like that, their programs are situated differently because there's not necessarily a lot of collaboration um, with the other film students. And so at SCAD, we're literally in the same building with the film students. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's shooting a project almost every weekend. So it's like, it's easy to get your hands on a film to practice um, wherever your interests lie, whether that's you know, production side, post-production side, whatever the case may be. And so I really appreciated the environment um, that was created at SCAD. And they actually just, um, they now have one of the largest lots um, out of all of the universities in the United States. They just set up a studio mm -hmm. lot. Um, so they've been acquiring and upgrading and, you know, getting a lot of land to really upgrade the experience for the students so that, Again, what you're learning in school is not just theory. It's also you're putting things into practice and it mimics the real world systems and collaborative processes that you'll experience like once you leave there. So uh, I just, SCAD was great. <laughs> That's great to hear. SCAD was great. Hi, just a short break from the episode, which I hope you're enjoying so far. If you want to check out over 100 episodes you may have missed, 
In addition to your podcast player or YouTube, I have an extensive website, leahroseman.com, with show notes, transcripts, the complete catalogue of episodes, and you can sign up there for my weekly newsletter to get access to sneak peeks of upcoming guests. Please do share your favourite episodes with your friends, follow me on social media, and share my posts. And if you can spare a few dollars to help support the series, that would be amazing, and you can find that link in the show notes. I'm an independent podcaster, and I really do need the help of my listeners. Now back to the episode. Mm-hmm. I, when you were doing your undergrad, I understand one of your professors heard some of, I don't know if it was your beats or other stuff you'd written and said, you know, it sounds yeah. cinematic, you should think about film scoring. Mm-hmm. So I always like to talk about mentorship with my guests. I think it's so yes. important. And I was wondering if you wanted to reflect maybe on other mentors or your experience mentoring younger composers. Yes. So um, mentoring is very key for me, too. And in terms of mentors, uh, I've had many different mentors throughout my life um, in many different ways. Uh, Number one, my parents being my first mentors um, who didn't always understand how to help me navigate this space, but they gave me a lot of foundational tools that helped me navigate life and kind of... um, gave me space to be self-directed uh just really they helped me become like a well-rounded being in general um and then you know i have one of my old band directors actually mr uh roderick smith who was ironically my mother's college band director he was my high school band director but um he was really great too um he he is not living anymore but um he was really instrumental in helping me like navigate what I wanted to do in terms of like from the high school to college track and presented a lot of options based on the strengths that he saw in me as a leader. Um, And I'll say that like, even in college, Dr. Tomasetti, who you just mentioned that, you know, kind of prompted me to think about film scoring. um, I really appreciated him because he was always thinking differently um, and really outside of the box compared to a lot of my other professors. And he was one of those people who would present opportunities that um, we weren't necessarily thinking about or even things that weren't necessarily offered at school. Mm -hmm. Um, And a lot of times, like, he gave me opportunities to work with him outside of school where I was, like, getting paid, you know what I'm saying? And as a college student, you know how beneficial that is to have some money in your pocket. So... He saw that I was taking my work seriously and and there were actually times where like he would be double booked and he would say, hey, like, you know, are you able to handle this gig for me? And, I, you know, it just allowed me to kind of uh, strengthen my skills, refine my skill set and kind of um, gave me space to. uh Again, become more of a well-rounded creative uh, in general. And as far as like the industry is concerned, I didn't necessarily have the same track that a lot of um, of my other peers have where they're working under mm-hmm. a composer as an assistant, but I've had a lot of mentors who I've been able to call and talk to um, who've seen what I have to offer and have seen my potential at various points based on when we met. And have opened themselves up to give me business knowledge, like Catherine Bostic, um, uh, Jonique Bonton, who we call JB for short. Um, he did. He scored um, the latest Transformers 
film. Um, Michael Abels has also at, at one point opened up his um, arsenal of knowledge, you know, to, to help and be of service and, you know, integrate me into the Composers Diversity Collective. Um, Amanda Jones, Chanda Dancy, like there have been so many people, even Chris Bowers, you know, there have been so many people, um, again, that have, even if it's just a quick conversation, have given me nuggets that have, you know, kind of latched on to my brain and they're things that I don't forget and that I apply often mm -hmm. um, as I grow and scale because a lot of them, you know, uh, although we're kind of like peers, but they're, we're all at different levels and everybody's experiencing things differently. And so, you know, a lot of them have gotten to certain levels that I'm looking to get to. And so it's always like, hey, you know, I'm here now, like, what's the, what, like, how do I do this? Or how, how did you do this when you got this project? And even like Stephanie Economou, who I was the co-composer with her for um, Step Up Season 3, Stephanie was really like a big mentor to me on that project because that was like my first narrative series ever. Mm -hmm. um, and while it was in Season 3, it was still like, you know, I was learning on the job it was very fast paced but in terms of just our collaborative uh exchange it was really beneficial and i learned a lot from her in terms of systems organization diplomacy uh when it comes to like you know engaging with executives and how to you know navigate the studio system when you're working on a project at that level so you know there are a lot of people that have come in and out and and also who are just still around and here today who have really helped um not only elevate me to this space, but also uh, just really like in life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was going to ask you about Michael Abels because I know he was uh, one of the people who founded the Composers Diversity Collective. Mm -hmm. And I've spoken to a couple of other composers on the series who are part of that. Yes. Yeah. So networking, like you had gone out to LA after you finished your master's, right? Yes, probably. So I finished my master's in May of 2014. So I got to Los Angeles in February of 2015. So a few months, mm -hmm. almost like, you know, six to seven months after I graduated. Um, and Michael, I, Michael, I met basically because when Get Out came out, I was really just intrigued by the score. And I looked up, you know, who did okay. the score and I saw him and you know, I was I was confused because I'm like, how did he get this big project? But he hasn't scored any films like beforehand. You know, he hadn't had any really big films. So I just started digging, digging, digging. I found his email and I reached out. I literally still have that email to this day yeah. um, because it's just a reminder. It's, I just keep certain things like that because they're reminders for me. But um basically asked him out to coffee he agreed and he kind of shared the process of how he got that film um what he was looking to build at the time which now has become the composers diversity collective and a lot of what um michael was sharing me sharing with me he was learning on the go because being thrust into this space was new for him too mm -hmm. um and so I'm sure he just saw a lot of things and a lot of holes where um, there needed to be a community like the Composers Diversity Collective. 
Um, and so I'm very thankful that he took that meeting with me um, and shared the knowledge that he shared and also, you know, brought me in to be a part of the Composers Diversity Collective and to, you know, navigate and, and exchange with other composers that, you know, I've had the honor of seeing like their careers grow from that, that point because, you know, Amanda Jones was in the mix, JB was in the mix, like, so many people were in the mix and everybody's careers have really blossomed and they were already going to blossom. But I think the uniqueness of this community has added another layer to the level of support that we've been able to give each other. And like, um, you know, when people sometimes are too busy for a project, you know, someone is like, hey, are you available for this? And so, you know, people have passed projects along and brought brought folks on uh to to be musicians and you know support support um folks for the scores that they're working on so at the end of the day everybody's still getting an opportunity to um work on many different sides and and grow their careers from you know opportunities that other composers may not be able to to, to take on at the moment so it's it's really dope mm. um and i'm just glad that i took the initiative to reach out to Michael at that time. And I, I typically, that's that's how I do things anyway. When I hear something I like or I'm drawn to something, I start I start digging and I start researching. And even if it's as simple as just saying, you know, hey, I really love what you do and that's it. You know, just creating the connection through that exchange sometimes blossoms, in, blossoms into, you know, things that you just wouldn't have expected. So, yeah. Yeah. And the Belson Collective that you formed. Yes. That, that's Haitian Creole, right? Yes. You are great. Yes. So I was curious, like, do you have a Haitian background at all or is it just? No. Um, I have a lot of peers okay. that are Haitian, Senegalese, Nigerian, Ghanaian. Um, and my, uh, my interest in that was mainly from being immersed in the culture through one of my friends um, and just learning and even just being a aligned with like understanding more of my heritage heritage in general because um, Haitian Creole is actually basically broken French so it's actually not really native to um, the Haitian people in terms of their true language because you know Haitians come came to the Caribbean basically through the slave trade anyway, you know what I'm saying? So um, in general, I relate to and can, um, and find commonalities in uh, African people throughout the entire diaspora. And and that's a huge part of uh, my name as well, that's, which Sankofa yeah. is Ghanaian. Yeah, Sankofa is Ghanaian. Um, and, and I mean, in general, like I have, Ghanaian ancestry. I have Nigerian ancestry. I have ancestry from the Congo, like, um, just, just a lot of different places that I've been able to trace back. So it's not far fetched and it's not like something that I just pulled out of a hat, but, um, it did come out of, um, really what's interesting about Sankofa is that actually it found me before I understood the weight of, integrating that into my name as an artist. Mm 
Um, and so, you know, sometimes it's almost like the action prompts the answers in a sense, you know, so sometimes you just have to do things and the details reveal themselves over time. And that's kind of like what Sankofa was in terms of um, my artist name, because it actually, Emily was a part of my artist name, but beforehand it was something mm -hmm. different. And so um, I made a switch because what I was calling myself before just, it didn't align. And so when I got to Sankofa, I knew what Sankofa was, but I didn't fully understand why it chose me at the time. And it's still revealing that as I live. Mm -hmm. um, but yes. Yeah, I was curious about your name. So I was looking at Sankofa symbols and the different meanings of the name. Really, mm -hmm. really, uh, it's, that's great. Thank you. Um, let's go back to your life as a musician because you're you know, a wonderful singer and a multi-instrumentalist. <laughs> I'm curious about your instrument collection. What does that look like? Mm. Instrument collection, mainly um, percussion, auxiliary percussion instruments. I have a talking drum, uh, which is actually like an authentic one from Senegal. Mm -hmm. um, really like what's interesting is I'm very bare minimum. <laughs> um, and I like to create a lot of my instruments too. like. I have a net of pennies that I've used on a project. Like, I just like using everyday objects, but I have claves, I have shakers, I have a kibasa, I have, um, um, there's this, this uh, I have a drum set, obviously, um, but I have this, uh, it's like a hybrid acoustic electronic situation where it's made by Sunhouse. Um, and it's called sensory percussion, which basically like you have a drum head and you can, um, you attach the device to the drum head and you can basically turn your drum into any instrument that you okay. want. Um, I have an Orba, an Artifon, and those are also, uh, like, so the instrument actually Artifon is the name of the company, but, um, it, the instrument one is the first instrument that I purchased from them, which when you look at it, it looks like a guitar. Um, but it can be transformed into, or it can be played as a piano. It can be played as a percussion instrument. It can be played as really anything that you want. You can program it. You can change the strings based on the type of guitar that you're playing, whether it's like a ukulele or a bass guitar, or, you know, you can do anything. And then the Orba is this small little, this small little round instrument that has eight pads yeah. and the idea is similar, but it's not necessarily, you don't have strings and stuff like that. But what's cool is it's Bluetooth MIDI. And I like that a lot because it gives me freedom to move around my space when I'm working out ideas. And even like certain articulations can uh, be changed and morphed if, if you're just tilting the instrument, you mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? So it's like, I enjoy things that give me the freedom to move about and to brainstorm in a way that I'm not tethered to my computer. Yeah. Um, and of course I use my voice a lot. My voice is oftentimes the foundation for my ideas. Um, you know, when I'm out and about, I'm not always, you know, around a computer or something where I can record a full on idea. So sometimes I record my voice or my ideas with voice notes, or I'm just singing and humming and just listening and thinking about things 
by singing and the voice is the first instrument anyway. Um, and really percussion, per, the percussion instruments are very primitive in that, in that way too, because uh, when you think way back, that was really the foundation for a lot of uh, the rituals and things that a lot of tribal cultures would do just in their day to day. And not, not necessarily like, you know, anything crazy, but for like dance and ceremonies and stuff like that, the voice and drums were like hand in hand. Um, they didn't have trumpets and stuff. They might they had horns here and there, like seashells and, you know, uh, like animal tusks and just things like that. But um, really, at this point in my life, and I've noticed this trend as I look back, but for me, I'm focusing on the fundamentals and what I can do with the fundamentals. Because if you can do grand things with the fundamentals, the embellishments are easy to deal mm -hmm. with. And so again, for me, it's about like scaling back because at the end of the day, you don't really need all the bells and whistles. You don't need everything at your disposal. You just kind of, you, you need to see what you can do with the bare minimum. Yeah. You know, there was a quote of yours Emily, I, I might, must have been like another interview where you said, uh, don't wait for inspiration. Mm. Yes. yes. Is that kind of what you mean by this as that. well? Just like. Yeah, because um, what what's interesting about that is um, there's a there's a artist. I can't remember. I think their last name is Glass, mm -hmm. but um, the quote was something to the effect of amateurs wait for inspiration. Um, professionals sit and get to it or something mm -hmm. like that. But when I saw that, I was like, oh, I feel called out. Like at the time I was like, I was really young and I was like, dang, that's, that's kind of heavy because really in the, in the professional world, that's kind of how it works. Um, and when you are on the hook for something, you have to just sit down and get to work. And even just in general, like, I feel that the best ideas often come through the action, which it, it's not only about the creative space and applying this in the creative space. I think this is something that can be, um, translated throughout life. You know, the answers to your, your questions happen through the action and sometimes stillness, stillness is an action. You know, like sometimes just sitting and listening, you might, you may need to do that, but at some point you also have to get up and apply and do the thing or work through the thing to really get to the end result or to get to what you're trying to get to. And for me, sitting down, tinkering, uh, experimenting, just getting to it, it helps me arrive at what... I'm trying to get to eventually. Um, and sometimes that happens because you end up making those mistakes that end up becoming the thing that sticks. And had you been sitting waiting for the grand idea, you might not have arrived at that point. You know what I'm saying? And so for me, I've, I've learned to also champion and accept the mistakes because a lot of times those are the things that people are drawn to anyway. Uh, they don't know there were mistakes, but I've, I've found that, but, but, that is a that is a thing that I wholeheartedly believe and um, I put into practice and 
there are points in my life where I experience life and I allow my brain to make connections and to catalog and download. And then there are parts of my life where there, it's time to get to work because experiencing life is an action as well. And, and you need material from the world to make your work interesting. And so, um, you know, that is a part of, for me, just being out in the world, experiencing things, um, watching interviews, like just digging in the archives, you know, those things kind of lead you to what the universe is trying to get you to focus on next. Um, and I think about that in terms of how certain projects come into my awareness too. Like I'm very mindful of what projects come into my plate and thinking about why is this coming into my awareness now? Like why, why me for this project? You know what I mean? Um, and that helps me even decide like whether I work on something or not, just depending on like how a certain project speaks to me and the, the topic of it and what's going on in the world and just all of these different variables that, that come into play. But long story yeah. short, yes, that is my. So, so talk about creativity because you're also a visual artist. I've done photography exhibits. Um, I've done some, uh, there was a, so when I went to California, I did like this, it was basically like a moving exhibit. So I drove cross country from Georgia to um, California and I called it Timber. And I had drumsticks. Like at this point in my life, I was shedding and getting rid of things that no longer served me as I went into this next phase of my life. And moving from, from Georgia to California was a huge, huge step in my life, mainly because I'm thousands of miles away from my family. I'm basically walking into, uh, like, I just never, I had never lived there. I'm, I'm walking into this new career. I'm completely done with school. So there's a lot that I'm getting ready to be confronted with in life. And so for me, every state that I went to, I posted a, like I, I posted a drumstick. Okay. Um, and, and, and they were like posted in cool areas or meaningful areas. And I would take a picture. And so that was like a part of the visual narrative as I'm moving from state to state. And of course it was called timber. Cause it's like, you know, the drumstick is wood, but it's also in, in, um, like among musicians, we call shedding like the jam session where you're just kind of like playing and, you know, just getting everything out. And so for me, it was about shedding what what would not serve me entering into this next um, phase of my life. And then I also did a photography exhibition. I did a couple in um, LA, um, but this was a exhibition that showcased my photography work that I did in South Africa in Johannesburg. And I did an artist residency there in 2017. It was for a week and I pretty much just went around to different parts of Johannesburg and just observed the culture and immersed myself in it. And I took pictures, pictures of things that were interesting, things that spoke to me in terms of like, um, the difference of how people live there versus like here. Um, the, the, um, the beauty of commerce there, like even just like seeing women, in a, in a metropolitan area, still walking around with like baskets on their head, 
You know what I'm saying? Like carrying fruit to the to the market to sell or it was just really interesting. And like Johannesburg is a very um, like there are parts of it that are still very much so like you can kind of see the remnants of apartheid a little bit. Um, but then there's like the modern elements that very much so align with how we experience or some people experience life in America. So the contrast was really interesting to see as well. Um, I stayed in the Maboning precinct, which is basically the arts district. And um, they had a lot of different events and just unique uh, restaurants and cars and um, even just the culturally diverse nature of the area where, you know, number one, in South Africa, you have 40 languages, pretty much, 40 main languages, right, that people can speak. And then you have 11 that are like the top ones that you can expect to run into. But on hand, most people speak at least five different languages there. So even that for me, it's like, it just humbled me as an American because that experience, sometimes like I feel Americans can be arrogant in the sense that we feel like, um, because English is like almost a dominant thing. And, and of course, like English is not, it's American based on the nature of colonialism, you know, but it's still like, we are not as cultured as we think we are. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And that humbled me because, you know, we have people across the world who not only have to learn English to do business sometimes, but they're they're navigating a lot of different things mentally. So these these folks are very intelligent. You know, like, can, do you speak? Do you speak? Um, do, I know like in, in, in different parts of Canada, there's like French. Cause I went to Montreal and I was very shocked. Like as soon as I crossed the border, everything's in mm -hmm. French. <laughs> um, so I don't know. It's just it was it was a great experience. Um, so that was a that was another place that I did like visual work. And then I've done um, I did Mistakes in Motion, which was a series um, that I started again on my own where there, I think it was one day I was in grad school and I had my phone in my pocket and I saw all these pictures that I had taken on accident, but they were so interesting. And so I took them and processed them in different ways. And so over the course of like a few months, whenever I would see like a, a photo that I had accidentally taken in my camera roll, I'd take that and manipulate it into this. Some of them look like paintings essentially. Um, and I, you know, had merch and printed some of them and, you know, all of that. So I've done a lot of these things over the course of my life because, um, photography and visual art is often another space that I can express myself and kind of, um, give myself space, uh, at, or give myself a chance to digest the world outside of music because, you know, I'm always listening that never that never ends but sometimes when you hop into other disciplines it gives you inspiration and again it goes back to the action of something and seeking inspiration through the action of a thing um so again visual visual art is uh something that allows me to do that but i can absolutely share um 
some of that. And I, and I actually have, like, there's, there's a, basically I'll say, like, some people have my photography hanging in their homes. Mm. Like, I don't publicize that, but, like, it it is a thing that I do take serious. Um, and it's almost like, you know, when there's the period of me focusing on that, I focus on that. Mm. But, um, yeah, and my dad was actually very much so into photography as well. He's also a great visual artist. So um, my my grandmother used to tell me all the time, my dad was the kid that was like, that he was always chosen to do the bulletin boards. And, and, and actually growing up, whenever I had a project where I needed some elaborate drawing, my dad was the one that helped me with mm. that. Um, so uh, in hindsight, actually, that is, that being a part of me is not far-fetched because um, my dad is a, is very good. And a lot of people in my family, actually. I have a lot of artists in my family. Yeah. Well, we, for some of my guests, we have like a small gallery of images associated with their um, episode. So we could put in a few. Mm. And of course, everything will be linked to your website. Um, I, can share, I can share personal links with you so that you can kind of see that stuff. Cool. Um, because it is, it's some of my favorite, um, actually, some of it more than the music, mm -hmm. because uh, for me, there's no pressure when I do it. I'm just experimenting even deeply, more deeply when I'm doing visual stuff, because a lot of it is not, um, like I didn't go to school for it, and you know, it's not my like mm -hmm. main thing, so I can be even more free in this medium than sometimes I can musically. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah. In grad school, I actually did a couple of collaborative installations. Um, there was one that I did with Jessica Henry called Plant This. And uh, that one was uh, installation on sustainability, food and sustainability. And so she did like these uh, video projections and I did the soundscape for that environment. Um, and it was like very organic sonically. And, um, then I did a, another installation slash collaborative performance with Rain Blunk. And that was in Savannah as well, but that one was called unlearning. And she actually did this as a nine day, um, performance art piece. And I was on, I think day seven, I performed with her on day seven, but that installation was basically about learning and unlearning. And just the realizations that you come to throughout life as you navigate and figure out um, like what to keep and what not to keep and relearning yourself as you grow into adulthood. Um, but it also was, I didn't, I didn't do this, but um, she had LSD. Like it was, it was, it was a very interesting situation. And so she's flowing through this trip um, in real time, kind of exploring like that topic that I was just talking to you about, just learning and unlearning. And so through that, I created, I think like an hours long, an hour long soundscape that I did some live things with her, but I also have the recording that I did. So it's, it's a really interesting, that was really interesting. That was really interesting. But the, the sonic, the soundscape that I created for that is, is really interesting. It has a lot of different parts to it. And it kind of takes you on 
like in my in my brain because when she described it and she kind of uh, prompted and prepped me for like how she was going to do it I had to use my imagination and think about like what someone might experience as they're going through this um this trip and so it's just really like a matter of me pulling the wildest things but also like leveraging intention to communicate um some of the internal battles that one might have as they're trying to like determine who they want to become, what they want to get rid of, what needs to stay, and also learning new information that kind of shakes everything that they've ever known. You know what I mean? Uh, so yeah, those were really fun. Those are really fun, but those are definitely worth listening to. And the, the pieces that come from that, uh, is golden dragon, and the plant this so i the plant this is named the same as the series but the uh unlearning one is called golden dragon yeah with geometry you know you have also that your commentary album which is very cool mm. but i thought maybe she wants to make movies because it's so narrative oh my gosh yes i directed so for geometry i directed the music video mm -hmm. that i um, created for that. And a lot of my peers have mentioned, um, that I should explore like directing movies and stuff. I, I, I do have a visual language and, um, even though it was a music video for that particular piece, I was inspired by an old short film that Cheryl Dunyer had done. Um, and I don't know if you're familiar with that director. She's worked most recently um, a lot with Ava DuVernay. I think she's, she directed some episodes of Queen Sugar and she's done some other stuff recently. But um, one of her most famous features, I think is Watermelon. Um, but the, the, visual, the visual language that she had, the film was called Janine. And um, I was just like, wait a minute, why is she like, why is she like editing or why are we seeing like feet, but we're hearing dialogue and we're like not, we're not seeing their faces. You know what I'm saying? So well, there's like a focus on things like very crazy close-ups on things that are typically like, um, not necessarily crass, but they're kind of, um, they don't hold the audience's attention the way that, you know, we should traditionally edit and assemble cuts to keep people engaged. And so I appreciated that. Um, Norman McLaurin was an animator, but a lot of his work was very inspiring to me. Um, and the, um, just the way he experimented and, and played with light and um, all of that, which actually the, the geometry cover was inspired you can't see my pose because of the shapes but that cover was actually inspired by a very famous norman mclaren photo um but um film is in my cards at some point um it's just about assembling the right thing like i have a lot of things that i've written out mm -hmm. and um mapped out because i have some really intriguing ideas film wise. So at some point, very cool, but I I've, I've, I've dipped into that side through executive producing for now yeah. and kind of understanding the lay of the land and, um, just being of service to some of my peers who are making short films who just need 
some financial support and, you know, just donating and just being in the mix. And sometimes they, they like to ask me for my feedback. And sometimes it's just like, you know, me just giving money to their project. But either way, it's, I love to, um, I'm always thinking about the bigger picture mm -hmm. anyway. I'm always thinking from like assembling the entire thing. So that's just how my brain works already. Yeah. So at some point. This is a clip from Emily's video for her composition, Triangles. The complete video is linked in the show notes. So you were um, your executive producer uh, on three ways and your tune triangles, which you'd already produced for geometry. You used another drummer, uh, Laguza, is that his name? Oh, so Nate Laguza. Yeah. So Nate Laguza was the drummer who I had performing the percussion stuff for the score, okay. but triangles itself, that was still in its original form from the, from okay. when I did uh the song for my project. So that was like a sync placement situation for that because it, it, it the director actually um, went through my geometry EP before finding me or upon like getting my name because he, cause he was actually, uh, I think, yeah, he was referred to me through one of my friends, Damo. And so upon learning about me, he went through my EP and actually cut some of my work to picture to kind of like show me what his vision was for the mm -hmm. score. Um, so that came about because he just really liked the song. It aligned with the narrative anyway. And so that just made sense. But yeah, Nate Laguza is the guy that I had performing the drums for the score for Three Ways. Yeah, I was, so I listened to the the soundtrack. I haven't seen that movie, but I was curious in terms mm. of like notation or how free it was. And then I'd also heard that for other singers, you had used like graphic scores, which was just kind of a picture. I was, like, in yeah, mm. so for Three Ways, I used Morse code as yeah. well um, for the drums. So the, the drum parts, which are where the main like, themes and motifs are built out. They spell the number three, the word three, and three, the number, and some. Um, and so basically I built those out on my end and gave them to Nate so that he could hear, like I built them out on the drum set. And so I, I gave it to him so that he could hear and we went back and forth kind of molding them for each specific cue. And so um, that's how that process went. This is a clip from They Look Great Together from Emily's score to the film Three Ways.
with the other black girl, the graphic scores I used to make the vocal clusters that I used for some of the horror mm -hmm. elements within the show. So there are times where you'll, you'll hear a lot of different sounds happening at once to kind of heighten the thrill and the, the tension. And so the graphic scores were distinctly used for that because with horror um, and in general, like dissonance, we don't like dissonance and dissonance is just unpleasing sounds, essentially things that just don't necessarily harmonically mesh. But um, I wanted to create dissonance and discord. And so when you have five singers in a space and you give them each a different completely drawing and you tell them, you pick the pitch, you pick when you stop, you pick when you start, that creates discord automatically because none of them have had a conversation about which note they're starting on how they're going to end, how they're going to start, none of that. And so we're in the middle of the session. Actually, while we were on break, I went and wrote the the, the scores on each of their mm -hmm. stands. And they came back and they're like, oh, <laughs> what is this? Like, what are we getting ready to do? And so I explained that process. And there were some, there were some people who, um, who I gave um, specific starting notes to at different various points. And actually, Alexander Blake, who... Um, he was the vocal contractor, but he also worked with me um, because his group, the, the choir, that's his group tonality. And so um, this was my first time working with a vocal group. So he also was in the mix to kind of help me with like um, certain arrangement things that I needed to be mindful of or just helping me like arrange some of the vocals. And because he understands his ensemble, he understands what they can do. And so having someone in the mix for that, too. Um, to kind of tweak things here and there and to share insight about how we can like build out things based on what we have. He was very instrumental in doing that. So um, shout out to Alexander Blake of, of Tonality. But yeah. This is a clip from Dinner Party from the other black girl in which you can hear some of the choir music Emily was just talking about. Your voice is a lot in the score as well. Were you singing with this group of singers as well? No. Um, so the day that we did the session for Tonality, we recorded literally everything that you hear from them in the show in one okay. day. And so what I had to do for that was I had to think of the overall how I wanted to use their voices overall in the entire series, because I think when we were, when we recorded that session, we had only been, we, we had only gotten to like episode two. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't even used choir vocals in what I had done for the show yet. And, um, I basically recorded them singing variations of the motifs that I had built out. And then we did a lot of, um, again, pitch clusters and things that we could leverage for dissonant sections where there's like perceived chaos and tension and stuff like that. And so 
um, what I did from there was once I got all of that material and got the motifs that I wanted to leverage them for, once I got back to Atlanta, I was cutting that stuff into what I was building out for the specific cues. And there were some instances where the, the choir material needed to be supported with something that I did vocally. And so I would interchange, like I would, I'd use my voice a lot because again, like I'm working through these episodes week by week by week. And so a lot of the stuff is like improv, me like doing what's necessary for the specific um, cue that I'm working on at the time. And once, once everybody heard the vocals, they were like, no, we need the vocals everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. Um, and so I'm like, okay. So a lot of it was a matter of like, um, me creating variations and me being the person who, um, could do that on hand, you know, because like once, once I got all of the material for the choir, that was the material I had. And so even with that, again, it goes back to the limitations. I would cut, I would, I would morph a lot of that material as well. Like some of it is very clear cut, like you can hear the choir. And then there are other places where, you know, you don't know if it's a choir or not, but you know, they're in there. So, okay. yeah. Here's a final clip from the other black girl entitled Friends in High Places.
know, we talked before about books. We kind of started this conversation about the, the book that the other black girl is based on. And you mentioned that you like yes. a lot of nonfiction. And in a couple of your other interviews, you mentioned this book by George Prochnik, In Pursuit of Silence. Mm, I have it at yes. the top of my reading list, but I haven't read it yet. So do you want to speak to that? Because I know it really affected you. Yes. Oh, my God. I read that book in grad school and it completely changed the way that I thought about sound, the way that I thought about silence. And it kind of sent me on this like, um, I mean, I had been thinking about I had been thinking about like my ears and and maintaining like just the sacredness of my hearing in general. But that book made me like more conscious about how I crowded my space with sound because you're getting the opportunity to learn and read about people in different countries where like their perception of what silence and sound is, is completely different. And what struck me was when um, he went to Kenya and took two people and stood them like a few football fields apart and they're having a regular conversation at a normal tone and they're able to hear one another. And I thought like, what you know there i have i have peers that like you you might be standing right in front of them and they're like S repeat that you know what i'm saying and i'm 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 just i'm very mindful um now about how we fill our space in the western world um because like even from reading that book you know, it made me more conscious of the fact that like our ears are really survival mechanisms. You know, they're designed for us to be able to respond, to react, to localize sound. If we're in danger, is it coming from the left? Is it coming behind, you know? And so how can we leverage and use our ears the way they were intended if we're always crowding our space with sound? Because at this point, and even I've done it with my peers a lot of times. I'll ride in the car in silence and they're like, where's the music? And I'm like, you can't ride in silence? Like, what's that about? Or even if an environment is, is too quiet, you know, people are on edge versus them, the, versus the opposite when something is too loud and you can't pick out what's what. It's like, we actually should be a little bit more alert when that's happening because it's hard to decipher what is meaningful and what's not, you know what I mean? And so after reading that book, I was really um, conscious about my environment and how I design my environment sonically. And even now, like my brother's in school for architecture um, and he's doing his thesis on uh, really sports arenas and sound and building uh, sports arenas with sound in mind especially because sports arenas are multi-use facilities. So outside of the game, how is sound being leveraged, you know, or how are we thinking about designing this space for other uses? Um, but I just think about the buildings that I'm in and I'm just mindful about all of these things. And that's kind of like how that book really transformed my life. But I absolutely think you should read it immediately. <laughs> It's 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 a great book. And actually Patrick Shin, um, he's a director. He took that book and was inspired and made a documentary um out of that. And I reached out to him too, uh, because that was my introduction to his work. 
So, you know, I was a huge fan of the book and I saw him making pretty much um, a film version of it. And I'm just like, seeing, seeing uh, folks in different parts of the world just have the luxury of acquired environment. You know, planes are not going over 50 million times. You don't hear the ambulance. You don't hear the city sounds. It's, it's different. And you're, the way you respond to sound in your, in your world is absolutely um, related to your location. And so it, it, at, at some point, like, I, I want to travel to all these different spaces just different places around the world to get a feel for how other people hear and listen. Um, and, and oddly enough, my thesis for grad school was going to be based on that. But my professors told me that was too ambitious because of the time. And I'm like, what? Too ambitious. But essentially, like, yeah, that, that book is great. Mm -hmm. To wrap things up, I was just thinking about, actually, we didn't talk about you singing and, you know, the church choir when you were two, your mom taking you, mm -hmm. and, you know, being immersed in that. But we talked about, you know, beginning in Atlanta and, and you've managed to move back, right? You didn't stay in LA? Yes. No, I was in LA for five years from 2015 until 2020. And then I came back here, um, which coming back to Atlanta was always the plan yeah. for me. I was listening to um, the Splendid Table podcast, which is a cooking podcast. Sometimes it's fun to listen to. Mm. And one of the guests mm -hmm. was saying how exposure to different um flavors is like different genres of music but i thought it really mm. works the other way and someone like you you know you heard your mom's classical music playing in the background and your dad's record mm. collection and marching band and church it really it's like you have this palette right yes yes uh that is that is absolutely correct i think uh being exposed to many different genres. Uh, my parents have uniquely different listening styles. Um, there are some times where their listening styles merge, but, um, you know, when I was with my dad, I knew to expect like funk and we got, you know, we were able to listen to some R and B and rap and just some other stuff. And, um, with my mom, it wasn't just classical, but she exposed us to a lot of that stuff. She was very mindful of, of what she uh, allowed us to listen to coming up. And so from that, from my parents, uh, just their influence and their musical perspectives, and then you have, you know, my own self-discovery and even, you know, like when you're in school and stuff like that, we used to exchange, like especially middle school, we used to make all of our peers, we used to make mixtapes and stuff for each other. So we'd be swapping CDs like, oh, you have this song, I have this song, or like, check this out. And so um, just growing up, it was a mix of just a lot of different periods and time and, and different ways that we were listening. And I came up, actually, it goes back even further because my Aunt Melanie used to make me mixtapes on a, a cassette tape mm -hmm. and she would like funnel mixtapes and stuff to me too. And so I was always with the Walkman, always with the CD player. And then when the iPods came, I was always, I always had an iPod. And, um, sometimes I would get in trouble for listening to music at school, like in the middle of class. But, uh, you know, it was just, it's, it's 
a beautiful blend of um, many different influences. And I'm so thankful that I had a wide variety of experiences, a wide variety of people with different listening habits who shared and exchanged with me throughout my life um, to put me on to things that I may not have ever discovered, you know, without being in that space at that time. Um, so there's, there's so much, it's like, sometimes I get overwhelmed because I'm like, oh my gosh, there are so many things like that I've listened to over the course of my life. And there are also like periods of time where I was only listening to this stuff or only listening to this thing. And so just thinking about that, I'm just very grateful for, um, the vastness of things that I am able to kind of pull from when need be, you yeah. know. And, you know, we talked a little bit about the environment and we didn't use the word soundscapes, but like, you know, how everything's mm. music. And mm -hmm. this came up when I talked with uh, Verna Gillis. And I'm just curious, just one last question. Um, mm -hmm. Are there sounds from your childhood that you miss hearing? Ooh. Sounds from my childhood that I miss hearing. I miss hearing the telephone, the house mm -hmm. phone. Um... I miss hearing the telephone because um, I, I don't know what it is, but it was like as a kid when the telephone would ring, especially when I got to like middle school, I would get excited because it's like, is it is it for me? Because, you know, that's the time where you start like having crushes and you're on the phone with your friends all day. And even like just family would call people that, you know, my family that I really enjoyed talking to. You know, I had a sister. Uh, and, you know, me and my sister are like almost three years apart. So, you know, we're running to the phone trying to see if it's one of our friends calling and stuff like that. But I really do miss the sound of the house phone because not a lot of people have house phones anymore. Okay. Well, thanks so much for this today, Emily. No, thank you. Thank you. But I appreciate you for allowing me to come on your platform. And this was a really great interview. Thank you. Appreciate yes, that. Yes. No, thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode. There's such a fascinating variety to life and music, and this series features wonderful musicians worldwide with in-depth conversations and great music with over 100 episodes to explore. Many episodes feature guests playing music spontaneously as part of the episode or sharing performances and albums. I hope that the inspiration and connection found in a meaningful creative life, the challenges faced, and the stories from such a diversity of artists will draw you into this weekly series with many topics that will resonate with all listeners. Please share your favorite episodes with your friends and do consider supporting this independent podcast. The link is in the description. Have a great week.